Disc 11. So in one way, the story of the 60s, in inverted commas, is elitist. A relatively small number of musicians, entrepreneurs, writers, designers and others created what the rest now study and talk about. If you weren't listening in the Cavern Club in the early days, or at the Isle of Wight when Dylan went electric, if you never dodged the police horses at Grosvenor Square, or heard Adrian Mitchell and Allen Ginsberg in the Albert Hall, or sashayed out of bazaar with a bright bag of swirly patterned clothes, then sorry, babe, you missed it. And you missed it forever. Most of us did miss it. Too young, too old, too living in the wrong place. But then most people miss the Wild West and the French Revolution and the rest of the events that come with capital letters. Yet apart from its small number of players, the new culture was far from elitist. It was shaped by working class and lower middle class people who had never enjoyed this level of cultural power before. The northern cities of England, Liverpool above all, but also Newcastle and Manchester, were sending their sons and daughters south to conquer even if it was only on radio and television shows. It is hard to recall now, but the Beatles' voices and the Geordie accents of the animals sounded almost shocking to the metropolitan and home counties listeners of the mid-sixties. The children of lorry drivers and dock workers, cleaners and shop assistants found themselves being lionised in expensive new nightclubs and standing in line to be introduced to the Queen. This combination of racing consumerism and pop democracy matters as much as the old debate about the 60s, whether this was a time of liberation and hope or the devil's decade when respect for authority collapsed. The consumer market as we live it now requires constant surface change, throwing out the almost new in favour of the newer still. At a deep level, it needs to be shallow. It also requires almost everyone to be part of it. It both trivialises and democratises. Look around. Compared to that, the political significance of pop and the youth rebellion of the 60s was insignificant. The years of insolence destroyed much about traditional Britain, but not in order to usher in some kind of anarcho-socialist paradise full of hairy people in boiler suits, dropping acid, indulging in free love and cultivating allotments. No. That older Britain, with its military traditions, its thousands of slow industrial and village backwaters, its racism, its clear divisions of class and geography, was being pushed aside so that our current democracy of shopping and celebrity could nose its way smoothly in. The people would not liberate themselves with class war, but with price war, not hippie communes, but happy eaters. Even the old fixed patterns of male and femaleness could get in the way of a self-pleasuring economy. Androgynous fashion, long hair, the pill, a new interest in the inner psychological life, an unabashed soppiness, if you will, really marks the 60s. It was when Britain went girly, and what the girls do? Girls shop. Equal rights and feminism were only touching the surface. There was still a long road to travel. Too many wry memoirs recount the gross sexism of the new rock stars, the innocence of their chicks, and the hypocrisy of male student revolutionaries. The pill might be on the way, and the abortion act would become law in 1967, but this is still a time of pregnant girls and knitting needles, the public shame of unmarried mothers, and gross domestic violence administered by drunken men. Equal pay was a long way away. 
Many workplaces, from newspaper offices to engineering works, solicitors' practices to bus depots, were utterly unwelcoming to women wanting work. From the early to middle 60s, egalitarianism was not a real social change, but, as often happens at times of change, a philosophical one first. The shift was in what it might mean to be properly human. The old virtues of stoicism, buttoned lips and obedience were retreating. Traditions of submission and obedience, hierarchies of class inherited from medieval landowning, industrial capital and imperial administration began to wobble and dissolve into something very different, a society which was dilute, porous and mushily self-forgiving. This took place not because bad people corrupted good people or, if you are pro-60s, because noble revolutionaries ushered in an age of personal freedom, but because it suited a new economic system. Bieber, an iconic symbol, promised liberation for women and girls, but liberation through spending. Its founder, Barbara Hulanicki, was a girl from an exiled Polish family, born in Warsaw before the war, brought up in British-controlled Palestine until her father, a UN negotiator, was murdered by Zionist terrorists. She too was a kind of outsider, later raised under the influence of a Bohemian aunt in Brighton, before the inevitable stint at art school, then the launch of a cheap mail-order clothing company with her husband. Bieber, named after a younger sister, brought together the new obsessions of glamour and cheap prices. Hulaniki had been mesmerised by Audrey Hepburn, her shape, long neck, small head, practically jointless, and her first top-selling design was a pink gingham dress like one worn by Brigitte Bardot at her wedding. Her succession of boutiques were dark, chaotic spaces in which customers could lose themselves, pick up and try on, discard and collect, and sometimes steal, a great gush of new designs which seemed to change every week. The clothes were being run up at speed in the East End and ferried over to the boutique several times a week. Turnover was spectacular, and soon the celebrities would be fighting with the off-duty typists and schoolgirls for Bieber designs. Mia Farrow, Yoko Ono, Princess Anne, Raquel Welsh, and even Bardo herself. As one admirer of the Bieber experience said, it was helping to create the concept of shopping as an experience, a leisure activity for the young. The trumpeter, cartoonist, and writer George Melly called it a democratic version of Mary Quant, and Hulaniki herself said, I always wanted to get prices down, down, down to the bare minimum. The cheapness and disposability of the clothes was shocking to an older Briton, in which millions of families made their own clothes, buying patterns from Woolworths and sewing them up by hand or with a machine, and knitting sturdy school jerseys or woolen dresses. This was the beginning of the buy-and-throw-away consumer culture applied to clothing, and though it would brim with moral dilemmas later, in the 60s it seemed simple freedom for millions of women. This was underscored by the Bieber look, that Audrey Hepburn gawkiness. These were clothes for girls without much in the way of breasts, girls who were not defined by motherhood and marriage, the girls who would soon be on the pill, career girls about town, girls who felt free in ways revolutionary French philosophers would never quite understand. Bieber would be destroyed by the inflation of Edward Heath's Britain and by over-ambitious expansion into a giant department store selling everything from meals to Bieber-branded baked beans, the greed and cynicism of its new owners who thought it could be just another big shop. So, poor Bieber. Misunderstood by the left, as we will see, 
and by big business too. A History of British Pop By the beginning of the 60s, all the essential ingredients of an urgent new market were in place. The commodity was music. Most histories of golden age 60s rock groups follow a familiar pattern. There are the opening pages, in which the kids discover Chuck Berry and Elvis, thanks to the unreliable but glamorous Radio Luxembourg, the commercial station broadcasting to the UK from 7pm onwards by the early 50s. Its famous 208 signal concealed a strange history. The station had been built by French entrepreneurs, taken over as an organ of Nazi propaganda during the war, passed to the US forces, and finally revived, funded by Ovaltine and football betting adverts the only known contribution of the Grand Duchy to modern British culture. These early revelations of American rock and pop will quickly be followed by one or more of the future stars suggesting to a friend that they form a skiffle group. Skiffle, credited to a jazz session musician and son of a Glaswegian violinist called Lonnie Donegan, used simple chords and homemade instruments like washboards to produce a brisk, jaunty, jazz-meets-country blues sound unaffected and often humorous. Unlike jazz, you did not have to be much of a musician to play skiffle, as John Lennon and 10,000 others found. Twenty years later, punk fanzines would print the finger positions for three basic chords and urge their readers to go out and form a band. This was precisely the lesson of skiffle. Lonnie Donegan's hits would be faithfully copied in bedrooms and school halls round the country, and, singing in a cod American accent, he would become the first British star to make the US hit parade. Next in this composite history, two seminal places would appear. One would be the coffee bar, whether the El Toro in Muswell Hill, or Liverpool's famous Cardoma, or a thousand in between. Coffee bars had become vital hangout places for young people. Often opened by Italian immigrants, they offered a rare space where music could be listened to, away from family-crowded homes or unwelcoming adult pubs. They hosted the first jukeboxes and sometimes live music. The second place to feature was more important still, the art college. In the 50s, art schools played a much more important role than simply producing the next generation of designers or sculptors. Many of them were Victorian or Edwardian institutions connected to local technical colleges and originally meant to provide the craftsmen who would help sustain a town's clothing, ceramic, printing or other businesses. Before the arrival of mass university education, therefore, which would not really change things until the 70s, art schools were where bright and imaginative teenagers who failed to conform to the academic disciplines tended to end up. John Lennon at Liverpool Art College, Ray Davis at Hornsey, Peter Townsend at Ealing, Ian Jury at Walthamstow, Keith Richards at Sidcup, Cat Stevens, the core of Pink Floyd and Roxy Music were just a few of thousands. The coffee bars were essential meeting places, but the art schools were the true factories of popular culture. Art students had long been a recognised and much mocked subsection of national life, in turtle-necked jumpers and CND badges. Such colleges had become vital rallying places and support systems for talented outsiders, relatively few of whom would end up as conventional artists. The great pop art pioneer, Peter Blake, a Dartford electrician's son, had begun to create paintings and sculptures out of the wrestlers, popular magazines, pin-ups and music stars around him. Supplementing his income by teaching in three London art colleges, Blake had a huge influence on younger people and was in advance of American pop artists like Andy Warhol. 
1961, he encouraged the young Ian Dury to start depicting what interested him. Tits and bums, gangsters, teddy boys, Jane Mansfield and Marlon Brando. But Dury was one of many, reaching out hungrily for a brighter, younger culture. Across the country, student designers found themselves working next door to would-be painters, graphic artists and filmmakers, so ideas quickly hopped across. The characteristic Bridget Riley op-art lines of 60s dresses and shop windows had been stolen by students from the artists they mingled with. The RAF-style roundels and bold black arrows which appeared on the clothes of bands such as The Who and became part of the mods insignia had been swiped from graphic designers and pop painters. The way the 60s and 70s looked came out of the fusion that happened in Britain's municipal applied design institutions, places not quite paralleled in America or continental Europe. This hunger for novelty and readiness to mingle disciplines became a big force in British music too. For the art schools had early on been bastions of folk and jazz. Why would they not be? Here were gathered thousands of bright middle-class and working-class teenagers, looking for fun and hoping not to be sucked into factory design shops or office jobs. By the later fifties, the art students would be listening to skiffle, R&B and the first generation of safely packaged, toothsome and relatively unthreatening British Elvis copies. First there would be grinning Tommy Steele, then Harry Webb, the Hertfordshire pub singer, reincarnated as the eyeliner-wearing Cliff Richard, then the former tugboat hand Billy Fury. A few years on, and future members of the Rolling Stones, the Kinks and the Who were imbibing radical ideas and new looks, as clearly the product of art school as any watercolour or well-thrown pot. Ian Dury and his friends got into trouble for using their paintbrushes as drumsticks, sending off a rumble through the rest of the building. That works as a metaphor too. The ultimate art school bands would come later still. Roxy Music, led by Brian Eno of Winchester Art College, and Brian Ferry, the coal miner's son who had been taught at Newcastle Art College by the original British pop artist Richard Hamilton, pioneered a decadent, clever, clever, intellectually sharp music loved by British audiences in the early 70s. Pink Floyd, the greatest of the concept album bands, is unimaginable without the art school background. So, let us continue the composite pop star life story. You have been corrupted by Radio Luxembourg, learned to play in a skiffle band, hung around at coffee bars and had your imagination jemmied open in a provincial art school. What happens next? In a word, management. In the early 60s, an unlikely-sounding name and a pretty-boy face meant you had probably been discovered by Flash Larry, or Larry Parnes, first of the Svengalis. The Svengalis feature early and often. Suddenly, there is money to be made from tousle-headed boys. Before pop, the dominant popular musical styles produced low profits. Most public music was live. The piano and banjo players on music hall stages, the star singers, and then eventually the big bands of the dance halls and the smoky subculture of jazz. Sheet music made big money for talented composers like Ivor Novello and stage stars like Harry Lauder. Gramophone record sales had kicked off with recordings of early 20th century opera stars, but the invention of the modern microphone in the 20s had then changed popular singing, allowing intimacy and variety of a new kind. So the recording industry had brought Gilbert and Sullivan, Louis Armstrong, The Ink Spots, Flanders and Swan, Vera Lynn, The Crooners and many West End musicals to millions of homes long before pop. 
By the end of the 50s, there were four major British recording companies, EMI, Decca, Pi and Philips. Most of their profits came from classical music or comic recordings. Only since the spread of 7-inch 45s had records really been something teenagers could aspire to buying. Though first produced in the US as early as 1948, for working-class British youngsters, they were still formidably expensive by the late 50s. The other essential technological changes arrived at around the same time. First, loud electric guitars, invented by radio repairman Leo Fender in 1948, swiftly followed by his great rival Les Paul. Then transistor radios, originally invented in the mid-50s to help Americans keep in touch after the coming nuclear war with Russia and becoming popular for other purposes at the end of the decade. Without the mic, the electric guitar and the seven-inch record, rock and pop would not have happened. Without the radio, the vital cross-current influences would have been unheard. Everything conspired towards the moment. The post-war economic boom was putting money in the pockets of teenagers and young workers. The baby boom had increased their numbers. Better nutrition meant they tended to mature sexually earlier. And the mechanisms for the mass marketing of pop were already in place. Radio Luxembourg had broadcast its first Top of the Pops show in 1952. Within a few years, television would follow. Rediffusion's Ready, Steady, Go, a crucial show in the story of British pop, then the BBC's Top of the Pops. The earlier generation of American rock and blues pioneers had turned music into short, addictive bites lasting only a few minutes to be purchased anew every week or so. The radio, TV and magazine publicity machine was up and going. The equipment was in every second home. Radios and record players turned out by England's then-booming electronics industry. And the workers, all those teenagers with stars in their eyes, desperately strumming away at cheap guitars and handwriting lyrics and chords from the radio, were just waiting to be picked up in every major city in the land. Thus, in this fictional 60s success story... The Svengali duly arrives at the back of the coffee bar basement, or the private club, with a contract bought from W.H. Smith in one hand, and a flash Parker pen in the other, and a decade of argument about who is ripping off whom is about to begin. Like Parnes and the most famous of all, Brian Epstein, who managed the Beatles, the agents and middlemen were often edgy outsiders too. Both those men were gay when homosexuality was illegal, and Jewish when anti-Semitism was rife. And so the typical pop band history will roll predictably on. The early dodgy names for the band, the cover songs, the year or two of bouncing around the narrow roads of pre-motorway Britain in hired coaches, between gigs at Butlin's camps and provincial theatres, the first chart hit and the first invitation to Rediffusion's headquarters to be filmed for television, the first Bentley and the first joint, the growing tension between the guitar heroes and the drummer, who never really fitted in, the purchase of a grand house in the home counties, the tragic early death of a band member by overdose, car crash or drowning, and then, eventually, the split, followed by the comeback. Though the stories of British rock and pop bands follow a predictable trajectory, the stories of the earlier bands are more interesting, simply because the story had not occurred before. It was freshly extraordinary, that fairy tale rocket whoosh from backstreet poverty to international fame and huge wealth. So too was the darker tale of abuse and betrayal, which almost always followed. 
Though pop was a business, it was also a story about class and morality. Almost every band history will describe the tension between the marketing of the music and the attempt by the band to stay in some way authentic or true to themselves. Many, of course, never tried to be authentic in the first place, but the important ones did, and it wasn't always easy. The Kinks, four North London boys who affected a camp look and played rough, hard pop, were put into the most extraordinary confections of pink hunting jackets, ruffs, and thigh-high suede boots to attract attention. Long before the New York Dolls or Velvet Underground, their gender-bending pose was also something the straighter American market found very hard to accept. The most famous band of all were bullied and cajoled by Epstein into ditching the rough jeans and leather Luftwaffe jackets image they had learned in Hamburg. To get their first recording contract, the Beatles were told to stop smoking on stage, stop swearing, turning up late, and making spontaneous decisions about which songs they would play at their gigs. Oh yes, and they had to learn to bow smartly all together at the audience after every song. They agreed. It would only be later that their success gave them the freedom to tell their managers and advisers where to go. The degree of control needed to make a band exciting but not too exciting would become one of the most amusing dilemmas in modern management. The harnessing of youth spirit for maximum commercial return proved as tricky and unstable as the early days of harnessing nuclear fission. Though it was finally achieved by the 80s, when the death of punk allowed entirely commercial and packaged pop unquestioned dominance. In the early days, it was not always quite as obvious that money would always trump vitality. There were still battles to be had. The Who was a West London band which had, like so many others, emerged from Skiffle and been kick-started by the success of the Beatles. They were encouraged by their manager, Peter Meaden, to dress stylishly and address themselves to the new audience of mods. But their violence and guitar smashing, while delighting their live audience, kept them away from mainstream venues for ages. Throughout a stellar career, during which they gave the Beatles a run for their money in the concept album stakes, the Who were never properly tamed. Nor were the Kinks, whose songwriting genius Ray Davies became involved in a punch-up with an American television union official who had called the band a bunch of commie wimps, and managed to get them banned from the States for four crucial years. One band's roughness and ire would provoke the next to go further. Apart from keeping physical control of the new market, the big battle line was over the subject of the songs, which quickly moved beyond the easy boy-meets-girl and black American rip-offs of the early years. Rock was about escape, mainly from the urban and suburban Britain of its young consumers. For most, the teenage years would end in a conventional working life and marriage, which was more popular than ever in the 60s, with marriage rates peaking in 1972. But drugs, mysticism, gangs and sexual experimentation were some of the alternatives celebrated by pop culture, to the discomfiture of the record companies, the BBC, politicians and the newspapers. Some bands adopted a provocatively camp look, wore makeup and baited the short-haired traditional male. Songs such as Lola and The Who's I'm a Boy discussed transvestites. There was a lolling libertinism in the Rolling Stones music which shocked watching parents. Above all, the rate of experimentation and change in 60s pop itself was simply astonishing. A new sound, line-up of instruments, length of song and image seemed to come along every few months. And in 1966-68, to 68, every few weeks. 
It was a classic capitalist market-driven competition, with profits and status dependent on beating the rest, measured by sales week after week. Among the great experimenters was Paul McCartney, who was feeding back discoveries about tape loops, modern composers, and Bach into the music of the Beatles. As they became the ultimate Uber group, they, however, found the screaming at their concerts so loud that even they couldn't hear the music, and retreated more and more to work in the studio, which in turn produced longer, more complicated, and reflective sounds. On it would go. The Stones' blues rock would challenge Merseybeat pop. The mods would hit back. Early versions of guitar rock heavy metal suddenly appeared. The amphetamine-fueled fast and short singles would give way to LSD-inspired albums with looping, hypnotic rhythms and surrealist covers. Acoustic protest songs were plugged in and went electric. Hairstyles went from slicked to floppy to long to shaved. Mustaches flowered and withered. Huge mountain man beards sprouted from the unlikeliest chins. Always the Beatles were pioneers. The first big stars to fall for Indian mysticism, sitars, or the next drug craze, and ultimately the first to find the pressures intolerable and to break up. The trajectory seemed impossible to beat. A band's success was based on its members' skills, but also on their authentic claim to be kids from the streets, whose anger, enthusiasm, boredom, and wit reflected the actual Britain all round them. The lives of the people who would save up and buy their songs. Pop was music from below, or it was nothing. Yet the successful musicians would be cut off from the world they came from by the money and the security needed to keep fans at bay until they were fated to sound introspective and irrelevant. Ultimately, life in the bubble would prove airless, and the music or the band would choke to death. Flash, snip, smile, the making of celebrity. The contemporary cult of celebrity was born in the sixties too. All developed societies lavish attention on a small number of favoured people, rich, beautiful, or talented. In eighteenth-century Europe, it might be duchesses and court composers. In classical Rome, orators and gladiators. In nineteenth-century Japan, warriors and courtesans. Details of their clothing, personal lives, foibles, family successes and disasters are gossiped about and vicariously enjoyed. They form a fantasy extended family, prettier and wickeder, and more brightly coloured than the rest of us. What has changed in recent decades is the scale of celebrity devotion. This cargo cult of modern Britain. It has elbowed aside rival forms in television entertainment, invaded and occupied popular newspapers, and produced racks of magazines breathlessly following the facelifts, marital breakups, boob jobs, and births of celebs. All of this originated in the mid-sixties. The cloying, ingratiating tone of contemporary magazines such as Hello and OK, when interviewing or describing some frozen-faced doll, can be found in the write-ups of the young set in British newspapers, supplements, and the arch-glossies of the sixties. The origins of Big Brother television exhibitionism are buried in game shows and agony art columns half a century old. The raising of footballers and musicians from being tradesmen's servants of the public to misbehaving gods began then too. Celebrities are often mocked for being talentless. Some are, some are not. 
a tribute paid to the young and beautiful by the rest of us, the circle of celebrity is paradoxically both very small and very open. From the outside, the celebrity world seems to be a closed, charmed place, a marquee guarded by men with shaved heads and sunglasses, inside which rock stars and footballers, actresses and princesses all magically turn out to know one another. Yet what the sixties discovered was that celebrity must be open too, in the sense of letting in new people from the streets, or it congeals into a resented elite. Modern celebrity has no time for a samurai class or for haughty duchesses. It must be a fantasy island we could all paddle our way to, at least in theory. Cultural democracy rules, even while parliamentary democracy struggles. What was called Swinging London, or The Scene, was simply a small number of restaurants, shops and clubs where a small number of people were repeatedly photographed and written about. In Chelsea, Bieber, Granny Takes a Trip, Bazaar and Hung on You were honeypots for the fashionable. In the evening, it might be Annabelle's or Showboat or Talk of the Town. When, in 1969, the private eye journalist Christopher Booker published his dryly hostile look back at the decade, the Neophiliacs, he found that by the summer of 1965, there were a mere 20 or so people who seemed to be at the heart of swinging London. They included the Beatles and Mick Jagger, the other stones had not yet quite cut through, the model Jean Shrimpton, the designer Mary Quant, the painter David Hockney, the actors Michael Caine and Terence Stamp, the photographers Lord Snowden, David Bailey and Terence Donovan, the cartoonist and editor of the Sunday Times, colour magazine, Mark Boxer, and the interior decorator David Hicks. All these new aristocrats, Booker pointed out, were in some way concerned with the creation of images. This list, though it would lose and gain constantly at the edges, had some validity. Bailey himself would pump the publicity machine with his box of pinups designed by Boxer. Booker takes up the story. The list, which was virtually a Debrett's guide to the new aristocracy and their circle, included two actors, eight pop singers, one pop artist, one interior decorator, four photographer-stroke designers, one ballet dancer, three models, one film producer, one dress designer, one discotheque manager, one creative advertising man, one pop singer's friend, and the Cray brothers from the East End, who could only be described as connected with the underworld. The contours of all this had been sketchily apparent a few years earlier, in the Profumo affair. Old money, Big business, the traditional arts and politics were edging out of the spotlight, now only to be seen at the side of the stage. Instead, working-class upstarts were arriving and stealing the show. Among the photographers, Bailey was an East Ham tailor's son, Donovan, a lorry driver's son, also from the East End of London. Indeed, the East End did very well with photography, because it also produced Terry O'Neill, who made iconic images of Shrimpton, Stamp and the Beatles, and the key British war photographer of the 60s and 70s, Don McCullen. Michael Caine was a Billingsgate fish porter's son, Stamp, the son of a tugboat captain. The female pioneer aristocrats included that Polish asylum seeker's child, Barbara Hulanicki, Leslie Hornby of Neesden, better known as Twiggy, who was the daughter of a carpenter and a Woolworths shop assistant, and Priscilla White, better known as Scylla Black, from one of the rougher ends of Liverpool. Few of these people would have made it in the London of the 50s, 40s or 30s. The same goes for the Beatles, Kinks and innumerable others. 
Jagger would have made it anywhere, anytime, as a successful businessman. The intertwining of Booker's new aristocrats was as sticky and sinuous as the old Tory cliques of the 50s or New Labour's Whitehall in the 90s. A few were there entirely because of their looks, such as Jean Shrimpton, the supermodel waif. The word supermodel was inevitably first used in 1968. But the important thing was the great sucking in of working-class talent, a transfusion that the old Britain badly needed. The incomers were fascinated by images, and they were colonising the new media opportunities, music, fashion, colour magazines, hairdressing, radio, television, advertising, that were not the property of the city and old money. There was a DIY spirit that has not been recovered since. Quant had been cutting up lengths of cloth bought over the counter and selling them at bazaar since the mid-fifties. Her iconoclasm matched and outpaced a Pete Townsend or Keith Moon as she drew, sliced and sewed up a uniform that mocked the pleated, padded extravagances of the old, new-look designers. Taking on the fashion industry of Paris and the West End from a bedsit and a tiny shop was at least as bold as taking on American rock from a Liverpool basement. Quant's shockingly short miniskirts, named after the car which she loved, were offensive enough for her window to be wrapped by umbrella-toting male protesters and even the occasional brick to be lobbed. She always maintained she was trying to free women to be able to run for a bus and to show off the beautifully fit, skinny bodies that post-war rationing had given young womanhood. But the sexual allure was what shocked. Michael Caine later recalled taking his mother down the King's Road to see what all the fuss was about. I said, here's one now, and this girl walks by with a mini up to here. She goes by and my mother looked at her. So we walk on a bit. She never said a word. So I said, what do you think, Mum? She said, if it's not for sale, you shouldn't put it in the window. Butterflies and Other Insects if modern Britain found her soundtrack and her cargo cult in the 60s, she found her special vices too. In February 1967, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards were arrested at the latter's Sussex Manor House, Redlands, during a raid by police which uncovered amphetamines and dope. Richards and Jagger received jail sentences and heavy fines, though ended up serving no more than two days behind bars in Brixton before their appeals. The whole thing had been orchestrated by the News of the World and set up a heated national debate, with the Times leading the way to protest about the excessive sentencing. In a famous editorial, Who Breaks a Butterfly Upon a Wheel, its editor, William Rees-Mogg, questioned the severity of the sentence, calling it as mild a drug case as can ever have been brought before the courts. A month later, the Times carried a full-page advert which declared the law against marijuana immoral in principle and unworkable in practice. The 65 signatories included medical experts, Nobel laureate scientists, some politicians, the novelist Graham Greene and the Beatles. By then, the Beatles had been introduced to cannabis by Bob Dylan and Paul McCartney was about to cause a further furore by admitting to taking LSD as well. The purpose of the drugs had changed in the few years since the Beatles and others hit Hamburg. Once they had been used to keep performers awake and then to calm them down after exhausting days or nights on the road. By the mid-sixties, the agenda was rather more ambitious. LSD was a truth-bringer, allegedly opening minds to higher planes and brighter-coloured realities. 
This delusion was imported from the west coast of America, though British writers had praised lysergic acid long before. Jeff Nuttall, a counterculture writer of the time, declared that it was being launched as something other than mere pleasure, as a ready window on the Zen Eternal, as a shortcut back to the organic life, religion and wonderment. Neither the raptures of the counterculture and the druggy atmospherics of Beatles music during the years when they reinvented pop, nor even campaigners, not much different from those who had successfully backed the Jenkins reforms, would manage to shift the state's hostility to such substances. Sex might be packaged and marketed, and so might rock, but drugs were something else. The pleasure that would remain forbidden. Rock certainly helped extend the drug's culture. Heroin, the most dangerous example, spread steadily from a small and wealthy entertainment elite, through middle-class would-be rebels, until it finally emerged with gangs, dealers, and all the paraphernalia of misery on council estates. In 1953, there were 290 known heroin addicts in Britain, and by 1968, there were 2,780. These numbers are bound to be far below the true figure. On the same basis, the figure by the turn of the century was 25,000. Cannabis, a less dangerous and far more widely tolerated drug, was little used in the 50s outside small subcultures, but by the mid-60s there were between 2,000 and 3,000 arrests a year. The figure for 2,000 was 97,000. Finally, while in the 60s cocaine was little used by comparison with other drugs, an academic survey suggested that by the new century, some 46,000 people in London alone were using the particularly dangerous version, crack cocaine. The 60s introduced mass drug use to Britain, as the musical and hippie enthusiasts promoted it as a social and personal good. The authorities decided to destroy the drug culture as a social evil. Both were confounded. Nobody became wiser or more interesting through using heroin, LSD or dope, and the battle against drug use has been entirely lost. The victims began with a steady stream of performers and hangers-on who died from overdoses or drug-related accidents, and more important by far are the hundreds of thousands of poorer, less talented children who followed them after having far less fun. Homegrown? No sensible person would try to draw a neat line between British pop and its origins in America. For everyone except the Americans, rock is an import and a transplant. Rock and roll was black American slang for having sex. It derives from the Deep South, via rhythm and blues, and eventually mated with the country music of rural white America, which, in turn, had come from the folk music of Ireland, England, Scotland and France. Accelerated, amplified and sexualized. when it arrived in Britain, it was immediately denounced as alien, indecent, anarchic, corrupting, negro music. Thoroughly un-British. This was not just the view of the occasional retired squadron leader sitting in his Kent garden. The hugely popular music magazine Melody Maker described rock as one of the most terrifying things to have happened to popular music. The rock and roll technique, instrumentally and vocally, is the antithesis of all that jazz has been striving for over the years. In other words, good taste and musical integrity. Modern jazz fans and folk music purists would try to hold the line for years. Yet the diabolic Elvis and all his works were too big, too mesmeric to be resisted. 
Few of the first performers and bands in Britain wrote their own material. Donegan sang in an American voice. Thousands of would-be pop stars did endless covers of Bo Diddley, Little Richard and Fats Domino. Again, it was the breakthrough lead given by Lennon and McCartney in singing their own material that persuaded scores of other bands to follow. Even today, and after a lifetime of hits, there is little about the music of the Rolling Stones that feels particularly English. Dusty Springfield had one of the loveliest voices of the age, but if you didn't know, you could have been forgiven for thinking that she was a black babe from Motown, not a Catholic girl from High Wycombe. Yet the British Isles had traditions which would feed back into the American musical revolution and change it dramatically, both in sound and content. We have discussed the art schools already, but there was also the folk tradition, which was being revived even though the pop and rock stars rarely had first-hand experience of it. John Lennon and Paul McCartney both came from musical Irish families, but had been cut off from their heritage. Bands such as Fairport Convention, which began in North London in 1967, taking its name from the house where they practised, and Jethro Tull, founded by the Scottish and Blackpool flautist Ian Anderson in 1968, would incorporate some of the feel of British folk back into rock. Others, like the Ulsterman Van Morrison, would cross the lines repeatedly. A stronger influence still was the music hall, or variety, tradition, discussed earlier, and the humorous or sentimental music played on pianos in the home. These can be heard in the brassy, knees-up sound of Beatles songs like Strawberry Fields, or through most of the Sgt Pepper album, in which the stomp of the fairground and the wheezing of the circus organ are not far away. As Lennon and McCartney, who both lost their mothers early, put it, let's all get up and dance to a song that was a hit before your mother was born. And beyond the Beatles, with their Liverpudlian nostalgia, a host of bands filled their lyrics with local references. To take just one example, Jethro Tull's Aqualung of 1971 name-checks Preston Railway Station, Hampstead Heath and Piccadilly Circus, while their following album, Thick as a Brick, which was a huge hit in the US, not only addresses the mood of post-60s despair, the sandcastle virtues are all swept away in, the tidal destruction, the moral melee, but manages to ask, so where the hell was Biggles when you needed him last Saturday? The most impressive and sustained attempt to create a distinctively British pop came from the Kinks and was at the time a huge flop. Banned from the US while others were breaking into American stardom, Ray Davies, a cussed observer of modern life, turned back to local subjects. He had always written pop songs about everything from the death of the dance halls to the joys of the English autumn, but the Kinks are the Village Green Preservation Society of 1968 was on an entirely different scale. As Ray Davies put it himself, while everybody else thought the hip thing to do was to drop acid, take as many drugs as possible and listen to music in a coma, the Kinks were singing songs about lost friends, draft beer, motorbike riders, wicked witches and flying cats. He is not exaggerating. The title song calls for the preservation of, inter alia, Desperate Dan, Strawberry Jam, The George Cross, The Sherlock Holmes English-speaking vernacular, Little Shops, China Cups, Virginity, Tudor Houses and Antique Tables, while attacking the new skyscrapers and office blocks. The album, which sold in tiny numbers compared to the Beatles, worried and confused the critics, who could not decide whether the kinks were being serious or satirical. Today it is regarded as one of the great achievements of British pop in the 60s. A subtle mix of affection and derision, nostalgia and mickey-taking, 
and no less essentially English for that. The Kinks were hugely influential, not just on other bands of the time, such as the Who, but on the later waves of Britpop. They showed that it was possible to write inspiring rock music about what was around you, without posturing as a New Yorker or Alabama boy. Indeed, without pretending to be just a little bit black. Rock was an arena for dreamers or harmless humorists, the fun factory for weekend rebels whose stars were too busy buying country estates, Rolls Royces, and drugs to worry about the condition of the country. Little of it was political. As John Lennon told Rolling Stone magazine in 1971, when asked to assess the impact of the Beatles, nothing happened except we all dressed up. The same bastards are in control. The same people are running everything. It's exactly the same. That feeling was shared by the counterculture left, who had been attending seminars and protest meetings about Vietnam, marching against capitalist stooges in the Labour Party, and ranting about the need for revolution. Like the world of pop, it was essentially an American import. When counterculture poets had put on an evening of readings at the Albert Hall in 1965, alongside the British contingent, which included Adrian Mitchell and Christopher Logue, there were the New York and San Francisco gurus, Allen Ginsberg, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, and Gregory Corso. The poets were the most eloquent voices. The American influence was not surprisingly strongest in the anti-war movement. When the Vietnam Solidarity Committee organized three demonstrations outside the U.S. Embassy in London's Grosvenor Square, the second of them particularly violent, they were copying the cause and tactics used to much greater effect in the United States. The student sit-ins and occupations at Hornsey and Guildford Art Colleges and Warwick University were pale imitations of the serious unrest on U.S. and French campuses. There was even a literally pale imitation of the ultimate U.S. underground movement, called rather pathetically the White Panthers. Their main revolutionary aim seemed to be free access to rock festivals, or what they called the People's Music. A two-week gathering to debate the dialectics of liberation was organized at London's Roundhouse in 1967. The star speaker was the American Black Power leader Stokely Carmichael. The event finished with a speech of abject apology from one of the British organisers on behalf of we deracinated white intellectuals, we who are bourgeois and colonising in essence. The conference's intellectual guru was a Californian exile from Germany, Herbert Mukusa, whose central message was that the affluent society was oppressive, based on the creation of false needs and impossible to change by conventional political revolution. In the same year, a French revolutionary named Guy de Bourg came to England with a call to arms. When he arrived at a Notting Hill flat to meet the promised group of twenty hardcore revolutionaries, only three had turned up, and they spent the afternoon drinking cans of McEwen's export and watching Match of the Day. Not surprisingly, de Bourg gave up on the Anglo-Saxons. British revolutionaries in modern times have been so little real threat that they were easily and cheerfully incorporated into mainstream television comedy through the character of Citizen Smith of the Tooting Popular Front. De Boer's followers, however, taking the name Les Enragés, were heavily involved in the great Paris and Nanterre student uprisings of 1968. This was on a scale like nothing seen in Britain. Nearly 600 students arrested in fights with the police on a single day, and at the high point of the revolt. Ten million workers on strike across France. Hundreds of British students went over to join what they hoped would be a revolution, until de Gaulle, with the backing of an election victory, 
crushed it. British alternative politics in print had no equivalents to the Beatles, the Who or the Kinks. The underground magazines such as International Times, Black Dwarf and Oz copied the rhetoric, artwork and cartoon style of similar American publications and lacked the salty, surly working class energy of rock. The greatest confrontation with the state focused on whether Rupert Bear, as manipulated by the pen of Vivian Berger, a 15-year-old schoolboy with a particularly lewd imagination, was behaving obscenely. The cartoon strip was central to the long summer trial in 1971 of the magazine Oz. At the Old Bailey, despite the best efforts of the publisher's barrister John Mortimer, the priapic Rupert was judged to be behaving disgracefully. Richard Neville, Felix Dennis and Jim Anderson ended up with suspended sentences. Immortally, the young Berger told the jury that though he wanted to shock your generation, also, I thought it was funny. A teddy bear with a stiffy. It rather sums up Britain's answer to revolution. The counterculture would curdle and gurgle away for fairly obvious reasons. It had no practical agenda. It was deeply hostile to organisation. It was largely middle class and had no effective links to the working class socialists who wanted higher wages and perhaps even workers' cooperatives, but were less keen on long-haired students taking drugs or, indeed, angry black people. Those parts of the new politics which would stick would be anti-racism, feminism, to the extent that it focused on practical and realistic ideas such as equal pay and refuges for battered wives, and the gay liberation movement, which also had clear objectives, and also looked to the United States for a lead, particularly after the Stonewall riot. But the great irony is that the counterculture disdainful of sell-out pop music, was far less successful than pop at creating an indigenous British movement. It was dependent on passing American fads and voices, as, by the mid-sixties, British pop was not. Rhodesia, Rebellion of the Whites While the message of the sixties still lives, other stories can dominate the newspapers for months on end, even years, and then are apparently forgotten almost immediately. Perhaps they are too painful to dwell on. The story of Rhodesia's Unilateral Declaration of Independence, or UDI, and of the short-lived federation that preceded it, obsessed four prime ministers in a row, Macmillan, Douglas Hume, Wilson and Heath. It filled front pages, elbowing out other contemporary crises such as Vietnam that now bulk vastly bigger in world history. It caused deep divisions in both the main parties, with their leaders condemned as race traitors or betrayers of Africa, according to taste. It produced bizarre summits on Royal Navy warships and dramatic confrontations at the United Nations. It pitched the young Queen Elizabeth into a constitutional fight over the hanging of three Africans. Its cast of characters, Garfield Todd, Roy Walensky and Sir Humphrey Gibbs, forgotten now, as well as Ian Smith and Joshua Nkomo, were for a time household names. But little of this is recalled in the history of the 60s. It sits uneasily with the war protests and the fashion, the music and the tower blocks. And the final outcome of the Rhodesian crisis, a vicious guerrilla war followed by the rule of Robert Mugabe, one of the most incompetent megalomaniacs to hold power at the beginning of the 21st century, was genuinely tragic. The tragedy can be traced back to the imperial idealism of high Victorian days. Cecil John Rhodes was a sickly clergyman's son from Hertfordshire, 
whose head was filled with notions of British world destiny, and whose bank accounts were filled with the vast profits of prospecting in the South African gold rush. Using diplomacy, threats, bribes, and great cunning, Rhodes created a company to take concessions in the heartland of Africa, far north of the British Cape province and the Boer Republic of the Transvaal. It was an area then known as Zambezia, now the nations of Zimbabwe, Zambia, and Malawi. In it lived various tribes, notably the warlike Matabile. Cecil Rhodes's vision of a vast British territory running from the far south of Africa to the very north was never accomplished, but the central area, soon known as Rhodesia after him, was carved into new settler states. Bizarrely, the British government never took direct control and allowed Rhodes's company effective autonomy, backed always by the threat of British force from outside. The white settlers, mainly from Britain and South Africa, would first use farming and mining concessions and then take complete political control of these vast, fertile and mineral-rich areas. In the north, a full-blown British colony, northern Rhodesia, would exploit the copper of the area and attempts were made to ensure decent treatment of the dispossessed local Africans. In southern Rhodesia, however, whose capital Salisbury had been named after the then Conservative Prime Minister, the settlers established a system of relentless racial discrimination, much like South Africa's, with a colour bar in employment and a ban on blacks owning land in cities or anywhere of agricultural value. Though South Africans of British origin and many Rhodesians had fought in the Second World War, the overt racialism of the white elite was both a threat and an embarrassment to London. South Africa would eventually leave the Commonwealth in 1961, Malan, like many Boers, had been pro-Nazi and was an anti-British Republican. He is generally credited, if that is the word, as the inventor of full-blown apartheid. The Attlee and Churchill governments feared Rhodesia would soon go the same way. To try to bind the stiff-necked settlers into a more benign system, London offered the lure of federation with northern Rhodesia and what was then called Nyasaland. The latter two colonies were ruled from London and had less aggressive policies towards native Africans. But northern Rhodesia had the vast wealth of the copper mines, so Federation would give the whites of Salisbury access to an economic boom. In essence, the deal, worked out by a brilliant colonial office civil servant, Andrew Cohen, was that in return for accepting a less South African attitude to the black majority, the white settlers of southern Rhodesia would be able to become far richer than they could from farming alone. In 1953, after intense haggling and bargaining about voting systems and land rights, which depressed, then angered the few black representatives involved, a new country not much smaller than Canada was duly created, the Central African Federation. To start with, things went relatively well. Embassies opened in Salisbury, tower blocks went up, international companies moved in. The government of southern Rhodesia, later simply called Rhodesia, today Zimbabwe, fell under the control of a moderately liberal Christian mission school headteacher, Garfield Todd. For four years he nudged and tickled the white settlers towards a fairer system, enough to gain the cautious trust of the leaders of the twelve-to-one black African majority. Could it be that a liberal alternative to South Africa was being built on the continent? The leadership of the full federation was taken by a railway man, part-time boxer and anti-communist union boss called Roy Walensky, the 13th child of a Polish Jew and a Boer mother who called himself 50% Jewish, 
50% Polish and 100% British. He was a much rougher character. The contradictions between British colonial office hopes for a steady transition to democracy, the profound racialism of the whites of Salisbury, and the increasing restlessness of black people who saw other parts of the continent breaking from the empire could not be contained forever. Eventually, the well-meaning Garfield Todd was ousted for refusing to back laws banning sex between blacks and whites, and for campaigning for a wider franchise. The spark that blew the huge federation to pieces came in the least expected place. Nyasaland, now Malawi, was a comparatively undeveloped area, with strong connections to Scotland through missionaries dating back to the days of David Livingstone. There were very few whites living there. What his people did have was an independence leader of rare shrewdness and international savvy. Hastings Bander was a poor village boy, encouraged by missionaries, who managed to get himself educated in South Africa, then the United States, where he got a politics degree at Chicago and became a doctor of medicine in Tennessee. He then got a medical diploma at Edinburgh, became an elder of the Church of Scotland, and practised as a doctor in Liverpool and London. He moved to newly independent Ghana, and then, in 1958, he returned home in triumph to Nyasaland. Bander was a Christian pro-British, anti-communist, and uninterested in military rebellion. He was, in short, a difficult man to caricature as a rebellious extremist. Yet, in a series of brilliant speeches and deploying the menace of vast, angry crowds, he persuaded Walensky that he was enough of a threat for force to be used. South Rhodesian troops were sent to the area, and though the Conservative government tried to impose a news blackout, Scottish missionaries smuggled back news to the Scotsmen in Edinburgh, causing protest around the world. Banda was imprisoned, as he had hoped he would be, but after wild accusations that he was choreographing a huge murder plot against whites were proved to be nonsense, he was eventually released at London's insistence. Nyasaland became independent, and the Federation soon collapsed. Northern Rhodesia was helped to independence by the Conservative colonial secretary Ian MacLeod a genuine liberal who did a deal behind Walensky's back with the man who would go on to lead independent Zambia, Kenneth Kaunda. MacLeod was seen by many as the next Tory leader, but this double dealing in a virtuous cause led to him being attacked by the Tory grandee Lord Salisbury, grandson of the man after whom the country's capital was then named, as an unscrupulous bridge-playing twister, too clever by half. The accusation of cleverness was, of course, fatal in the Conservative Party of the early 60s, and MacLeod's career never recovered. This left southern Rhodesia, with its 220,000 whites and 2.5 million blacks standing almost alone. The settlers wanted independence inside the Commonwealth, on the basis of a constitution that excluded the black African majority from any shred of power. Had this been accepted by London, the anger among other Commonwealth states would have been enough to cause mass resignations and, quite possibly, the end of the organisation. It was not simply a matter of keeping the Queen happy, or of retaining the last vestige of Britain's formal imperial power system. Public opinion by the early 60s was strongly hostile to the idea of apartheid being mimicked in a Commonwealth state. So there was an impasse. And to make it more impassive still, the laconic, difficult and wily figure of Ian Smith arrived on the scene as the new Prime Minister in Salisbury. 
Smith was a right-wing rancher, educated in South Africa, who had served in the RAF during the war and was idolised by his supporters. The old guard, led by Walensky, realised that simply declaring independence from Britain and setting up a whites-only state might be tricky. Rhodesia's judges and soldiers had sworn allegiance to the Queen. Rhodesia's finances and much of her trade flowed through the city of London. Smith had no such qualms. He was quite prepared for UDI, a unilateral declaration of independence. This was hardly a rerun of the North American Rebellion of 1776, but there were uncomfortable parallels. If, in the end, they were ready to go, what was Britain going to do about it? There was at least the option of sending an army and fighting, though in the American case this had not worked out wholly successfully. But Rhodesia was thousands of miles beyond the reach of the Royal Navy and, in any case, this was a rebellion by whites who professed to be the front line against Marxist insurrection, many of them veterans of the British wartime forces. Would an attack on kith and kin really be acceptable to British voters? Would its threat be taken seriously in Salisbury? On the other hand, would Rhodesian troops who had declared their personal loyalty to the Crown fire back against British paratroopers if they landed. This was the dilemma that Harold Wilson inherited when he took office in 1964. Pro-Rhodesian right-wingers had made things very difficult for MacLeod and Macmillan as the Tories struggled to grapple with the breakup of the Federation. Now vehemently anti-colonialist left-wingers would make things almost as difficult for a Labour Prime Minister. Wilson began by warning Rhodesia of the serious economic consequences of UDI and by setting out conditions for British acceptance of an independent state, including unimpeded progress towards majority rule, the end of racial discrimination and no oppression of the majority by the minority, none of which was acceptable to Smith and his followers. Meetings in London did not help. Wilson then went on a disastrous trip to Salisbury. While there, he insisted on seeing the imprisoned African leaders Nkomo and Sitole, and exploded with anger when they were ushered into him thirsty and hungry. Only after Wilson threatened to lead his own staff into the shops to buy them something did the Rhodesians offer water and food. Later, he endured rudeness and mockery from Smith's ministers. Fatally, however, Wilson made clear that he would not use force under any circumstances confirming in a broadcast that if anyone was expecting a thunderbolt in the shape of the Royal Air Force, let me say that this thunderbolt will not be coming. It was a mistake. Smith had been seriously worried by the prospect of Britain using force and believed Rhodesia would be unable even to try to resist. Perhaps Wilson was worried about the effect on the pound, or perhaps he was too mindful of the humiliation of Suez. At any rate, after Wilson's admission, Smith realised he had nothing to fear. Sanctions never worried him, and briskly went ahead in November 1965 to declare the country independent. From then on, the policy of trying to squeeze Rhodesia into submission with oil and other sanctions was tried, even though few in Whitehall thought it had a chance of working. There were too many ways in and out of the country, and too many middlemen prepared to trade. Rhodesia developed her own consumer industries and sold her tobacco and other farm produce via South Africa. The oil came in through Portuguese Mozambique. Wilson tried two more summits with Smith, both on warships anchored in the Mediterranean, so that neither man would have to step on the other's territory. 
Britain's conditions for accepting independence became more and more humiliatingly slim. But Smith brushed them aside, secure in his support at home and realizing that Wilson had no effective threat to hold over his head. The British governor of Rhodesia, Sir Humphrey Gibbs, with the chief justice, Sir Hugh Beadle, kept a tiny oasis of loyalty to the crown in the old government house, dining in black tie and toasting the queen, even though his car and telephone had been cut off by Smith's regime. But the brutal reality of UDI was underlined when three Africans, sentenced to be hanged for murder, were refused leave to appeal to London in 1968. The Queen, advised by Wilson, then used her prerogative of mercy and reprieved the three men. They were hanged anyway, an act described as assassination and murder in the United Nations. Smith went ahead with a new constitution regarded throughout the world as brutally unfair and racist. By the time Wilson left office in 1970, the Rhodesian dilemma was no nearer to being solved, and it would continue to hang over British politics into the Thatcher years, when the black majority finally won power. The Smith regime, though regarded as a pariah state, would survive through an increasingly violent and complicated guerrilla war until finally giving way to one-party government by Mugabe. Zimbabwe's fate would be an awful one ravaged by violence, famine and disease, as Marxist leaders tutored in extremism by their white enemies, eventually extracted a revenge. Less on the whites, many of whom eventually fled, than on their own people. Could any of this have been prevented by a liberal-minded Whitehall, which had never exercised real power in Salisbury since the days of Cecil Rhodes? Only, perhaps, by being prepared to go to war in Africa. This time, not to win land and treasure, but undo the consequences of earlier adventures and to oust the English-speaking white elites. It would have been a huge risk. The bloody experience of other European countries in African wars and Britain's experience near to home in Northern Ireland suggests that such a war might well then have run out of control and lost its original purpose. Harold Wilson, like his Tory predecessors and successors, decided that such a war was unthinkable. Had they had any inkling of the fate waiting for the people of Central Africa, it is just possible that they might have thought again. The Pound and the Viet Cong Amid this maelstrom, Britain, yet again, was close to bankruptcy. How to get a grip? Devaluing the pound might have given the Wilson government and the country the chance of a fresh start. In a world of fewer and floating currencies, the importance of devaluation is harder to understand now, but it was then the single most important issue facing Wilson. On the one hand, cutting the international value of your currency against others was an admission of failure on the world stage, a humiliation for any government. It would mean imports costing more, so unless people bought fewer foreign goods, it would mean more inflation. On the other hand, it would make exports cheaper, giving British companies a chance to win back markets they were losing. If the government devalued and managed to keep a grip on the consequent inflation while industrial exports grew, then the country could, in theory, leap in one painful stride away from her economic problems. It was a little like dropping out of a race, intensively retraining, sweating out the fat, slimming down, working on the muscle tone, and then starting the next race better prepared. Except that in the economy, you never actually stop working. 
As for a racer, the embarrassment of dropping out would be pointless if there was not the sweat and retraining, the greater efficiency and improved productivity. It needed to be a shock to the system, not a rest from reality. Many people, including in the Labour government, seemed not to have realised this. They thought, when eventually they were prepared to consider it, devaluation would avoid the tough choices at home, which, in fact, it absolutely required. This was a choice which went beyond economics. Devaluation and world politics were inextricably linked. To devalue the pound in the mid-sixties meant Britain's overseas spending would have to be dramatically cut back, just as the robot floating pound scheme of 1953 implied. Those smaller pounds would buy fewer gallons of oil, foreign manufactured guns and accommodation for troops. So it would probably mean a further withdrawal from Britain's world role, in particular east of Suez, the bases in Hong Kong, Malaya, Singapore, Aden and the Gulf. That would irritate Washington, particularly as communist advance in Southeast Asia was the issue of the hour. The alternative was to try to keep the global role and borrow from the United States. This was certainly on offer, but at a large political price. As President Johnson's special assistant put it at the time, we want to make very sure that the British get into their heads that it makes no sense for us to rescue the pound in a situation in which there is no British flag in Vietnam and a threatened British thin-out both east of Suez and in Germany. A British brigade in Vietnam would be worth a billion dollars at the moment of truth for Sterling. In the Commons and during the 1964 general election, Wilson had mocked Polaris as being neither independent nor British and indeed unable to deter Yet in the later 60s and early 70s, HMS Resolution, Renown, Repulse and Revenge were duly launched. Their names came from battlecruisers and battleships that had been the pride of an independent Royal Navy. But the new submarine's missiles were American by proxy, and the same was true of their successors, the Trident submarines of today. Technological dependence now rendered any idea that this was a truly independent system absurd. In power, Wilson had the option of abandoning the nuclear option, since the submarines being built to take Polaris could have been adapted as conventional hunter-killer boats. He chose not to, and even in the mid-70s, to disguise the economics of the Polaris upgrade, codenamed Chevaline, from the cabinet sceptics. Crossman assessed the dilemma shrewdly, noting in January 1965 that Wilson was committing Britain to defence spending almost as burdensome, if not more burdensome, than that to which Ernest Bevin committed us in 1945, and for the same reason, because of our commitment to the Anglo-American special relationship and because of our belief that it is only through the existence of that relationship that we can survive outside Europe. For many, this was a positive argument for devaluation. The pro-Europeans in the cabinet hoped devaluation would help drive the country towards its destiny as an ordinary member of the EEC and away from global pretensions. They felt that Britain had to break with America, despite the financial guarantees Wilson had wrung from Washington earlier. She had to change direction, devalue, join Europe. That, according to Barbara Castle, was what George Brown had decided. We've got to turn down their money and pull out the troops. I want them out of east of Suez. This is the decision we have got to make. Break the commitment to America. 
I've been sickened by what we have had to do to defend America, what I've had to say at the dispatch box. Castle interjected. Vietnam? And Brown replied, yes, Vietnam too. Belligerent, contemptuous, he feared that Wilson would simply go over to Washington and cook up some screwy little deal. Brown, at least, had a clear strategic direction. Wilson did not. Cooking up screwy little deals was his forte. He was the master chef of screwy little deals. By now, the complex nature of the choice facing him was apparent. Devaluation and the future of socialism. Britain's relationship with America and attitude to the Vietnam War. And whether we could and should be in the European community were all completely interlinked. Had Britain broken with America during the most testing time in its Vietnamese agony, the story of the Atlantic Alliance would have taken a very different turn. We would probably have entered the EEC much earlier and, again, probably have played a role closer to that of France in the following decades, less linked in nuclear defence or intelligence terms to Washington. What this would have meant for the British economy's failing experiment in continental corporatism and for the stability of the anti-communist world is impossible to say. Further, because many Commonwealth countries held their reserves in sterling in London, devaluing the pound would have been a one-off and unilateral cut in the wealth of friendly and often poor countries. Deciding about the value of the pound was also a choice about Britain's place in the world. Oddly, the thing that would do most to destroy Harold Wilson's reputation on the left was also the policy for which Britain has most cause to remember him gratefully. We have seen some of the pressure he was under to commit British troops to Vietnam. The Australians had committed a battalion, President Johnson constantly reminded him. Perhaps the Black Watch might be sent, or at the very least, a military band? American hints had been mingled with those American threats about the pound, and Britain's economic position was, as we have seen, weak enough. Whitehall mandarins and some of his own advisers thought he should have committed at least some troops, but though Wilson may have been tempted, and though British special forces had been considered, he held back from doing so. He tried to buy the Americans off with words of support and stabs at a diplomatic solution, hoping to use his connections in Moscow and suggesting some intervention directly with the North Vietnamese. He managed to placate nobody. The initiatives infuriated Washington, while the anti-war marchers at home simply heard his supportive words for Johnson. Wilson was berated in the streets as a murderer. His Secretary of State for Defence, who had quickly realised the scale of risk that Vietnam posed and helped keep Britain clear, was rewarded on university campuses with cries of Hitler Healy. When the trade union leader Frank Cousins, briefly in the government himself, asked Wilson why he wasn't taking a firmer stand against American war-making, Wilson furiously replied, because we can't kick our creditors in the balls. One of Wilson's later biographers made the case for the defence with steely eloquence. Losing all Washington's friendship and financial support would have been devastating. Few considered the implications for domestic social, housing, education, arts and science policies, including the probable effect on student grants. Few indeed of those who attacked the Prime Minister and his colleagues simultaneously for helping the Americans abroad and not doing more to help the poor at home ever came to terms with the bleakness of the choice. Yet, the same writer went on, it was over Vietnam that the party of conscience seemed to lose touch with its soul.
and over Vietnam too, that many who had pinned their trust in Wilson decided his principles were a shattered crystal beyond hope of repair. Here, for once, he was doing the right thing, or the best thing, and it was over this that he was most denounced. Who said politics was fair? Even Wilson's close supporters were at times disgusted by his twisting to keep the options open. Tony Benn, a few weeks before Wilson went to the country to try to increase his majority early in 1966, had recorded, My opinion of Harold was lower tonight than it has ever been before. He really is a manipulator who thinks he can get out of everything by fixing somebody or something. Although his reputation is now riding high, I'm sure he will come a cropper one day when one of his fixes just doesn't come off. At almost exactly the same time, Crossman summed up Labour's wider problem. The main trouble is that we haven't delivered the goods. The builders are not building the houses. The cost of living is still rising. The incomes policy isn't working. We haven't held back inflation. We haven't got production moving. We are going to the country now because we are facing every kind of difficulty and we anticipate that things are bound to get worse. End of Disc 11